When I was growing up, there were six words I heard more than any others. Be the best you can be. And when I say I heard this more than anything else during my childhood, I mean it. I heard it during most family dinners, conversations about sports, college, how to live life, and certainly in every story about my dad's family. It's one of those pieces of life advice everyone hears at some point. But from the time I was born until the time I left for college, I'd heard it almost every single day. So what does OPA mean? To me, I mean, <laughs> OPA has become a name. It's like, it's just, you know, it's just OPA. <laughs> what does it mean in German? OPA means grandpa in German. OPA, as my brother Christopher explains, is our grandfather. We call him this because my grandmother was from Germany, where she met my grandfather. And Opa is the reason that I heard be the best you can be almost every day of my childhood, because he so fully lived up to this expectation. I think his whole life was, well, I knew him, was that. This is my dad. uh, Be the best you can be, and the most important thing to him was be the best husband and father he could be. You know, the next thing was be the best... uh, physician he could be and I mean there were very few times that anything deviated from that I mean there were and from the stories of Opa's early life his accomplishments as a doctor his service in World War II Germany the incredible sons he raised I can't say my dad is wrong it seems like such a cliche phrase to live by be the best you can be like maybe one you'd find on a pencil in a middle school but for my grandfather it was honestly a way of life It was so rooted in his background and was something we as a family saw every day until nearly a year ago when he passed away. I think he did well in high school. I think he graduated early. Um, This is my uncle Nick. And it was, um, he was in the army then and he, you know, he tells a story about how great that was for him because they didn't have any money. And once the, once he was in the army, he could afford books and he could afford clothes. I mean, that was something that really helped him get through um, both the end of college and uh, the beginning of medical school. But um, He couldn't apply to many medical schools. He knew that the, the selection was limited because of his ethnic background. My grandfather was black and being born in 1921 meant that he was going to college and medical school 10 years before Brown versus the Board of Education was even filed. Some graduate in law schools were forced to admit blacks. But the court was aware that the big fight was still to come. The schools, white children and black, in the same classroom. Michigan was one of the few places in the country other than the historically black colleges that would accept an African-American into their medical school. So when he got in, that was a great thing for him. Um, he just didn't have the, the um, breadth of places that, that you or I had um, in terms of where we would get our education. Did he ever tell stories about the challenges he faced in these racial attitudes during the time period? And like- yeah, you know, he he never liked to talk about it too much. I think it was a very difficult thing. He, in some ways, wanted to protect us, right? Feeling that we didn't have this certain burden to carry. You know, rightly or wrongly, I think that's how he saw it. Didn't stop him. <laughs> I mean, he was he was very driven. 
In fact, these early life challenges may have made him even more intent on becoming a doctor. You know, after medical school, he did his, um, re- his internship and his residency at the Homer G. Phillips Hospital, and, and that was a traditionally black hospital. I think there was a lot of unfair distribution of resources associated with that. And I remember in the last few years that, um, that he was with us, you know, I'd ask him about it and it came up and, um, you know, I would ask him what was it like and he, he would kind of look down and he shook his head and he said it was really second class. He could see what other institutions were like that didn't have the restrictions that were placed on ethnic backgrounds. And he could see how it was different for a black hospital than it was from a traditional white hospital. And I think that really bothered him. Like something that I've learned from you, my dad, especially, is just like, do your best and... Um, especially when it comes to medicine, like do the best you can for your people around you. And um, it must have been hard to see that he could have maybe been doing a better job if he'd had the resources. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the reason for that was just so obvious. It was just mm-hmm. so obvious that it was because it was a black hospital. Yeah. So he did talk about that. Um, Nevertheless, he pushed on. In what I'm sure was the quiet, determined manner I grew to know and love as a little girl. And this persistence led him to opening a private practice in downtown Los Angeles, where he moved with my beautiful grandmother and raised my dad and uncle on the basis of being the best you can be. Just every time he'd walk in a room, even if he had been going all day and he was, I'm sure, very busy and tired, he'd always, he'd walk in the room and the first thing would be, hi! Yeah, he seemed very devoted to his patients and their families. And devotion led to appreciation. I don't know, I'm sure your dad has told you this. There was no place that we could go in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a big city. Yeah. When I went anywhere, we went anywhere. We'd go to Disneyland, we go to the beach, we go anywhere. It was always Dr. Blevins. And, you know, his response is always the same. He would smile, he would say, yes, how are you? Oh, it's so good to see you. And then we would walk away and he goes, boy, I wish I could remember who that was. <laughs> it was always a very exciting thing to see that. Opa connected with people. He was a part of his patients' lives, and they were a part of his. And your dad and I were really affected by that. I think from Homer Phillips and from his um, experiences, he was really dedicated to serving the needs of people who wouldn't have gotten care otherwise. This focus led him to treating children diagnosed with sickle cell anemia. Right, and these are African-American children who, who had almost no future. Mm-hmm. And when they were his patients, they were his patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all throughout their life. So much of our family time, you know, the phone would ring and it was because, you know, somebody was having this problem or mm-hmm. that problem. And, 
you know, that was just the way it was. And he was yeah. in the car and he was going to go see him and he would, you know, admit them to children's hospital and take care of them. And mm-hmm. it was, it was, they had really gone under his care. Um, yeah. But I can tell you up until the time when he was 94 and a half, when he was still able to use the computer and read, he was still pulling up articles on sickle cell anemia. And again, I think that's just indicative of his um, devotion to that population that, yeah, that to a large extent came out of his experience of seeing how kids were not getting a chance mm-hmm. um, because of how the conditions were when he was growing up. My dad grew up to be an orthopedic surgeon, and my uncle grew up to be an ENT surgeon, cementing the third generation of doctors in our family. That's how my dad and my uncle chose to be their best. You know, when you're a little kid and people ask you, what are you going to do? Are you, you know, I was either going to be a fireman, a trash man, or do what my dad did. And my dad? I don't look at it as trying to fill his shoes because I'm not trying to be him. But I am using him as a role model. And, you know, even though I don't know if I'll ever achieve that, I'll always try. And I think that makes me or helps me be the best person I can be. Opal was such a larger-than-life figure for both my dad and uncle, so no wonder they chose to teach their kids the same lessons he taught them, because his advice, encouragement, and love got them to where they are today. I think, you know, he always said it didn't matter what we did as long as we did it, you know, in the best way that we possibly could, right? And I think that... um, you know, that's something that is said a lot um, yeah. to kids, right? Mm-hmm. But it meant a lot for me to hear it from him, yeah. right? And I think that just keeping that in the back of our minds, always, I think, for, you know, your dad and me, um, it made a big difference just to, you know, allow us to try to succeed. My dad and my uncle did a pretty good job of passing this message down to my brother and me. One thing that dad... Um, told me, Opa told him when he was a teenager getting ready to go to college and uh, really grow up was be the best you can be. And I think he said, if you, if all you wind up being is a trash worker, then um, be the best trash worker you could possibly be. And, and that's uh, kind of the, like, it's like, of course, be the best you can be. There's nothing else to it. You just, you just have to. You just have to. And I think that's what Opal would want, for Christopher and I to just do our best with what we've got to shape what time we do have to be something beautiful and meaningful for ourselves and for the people around us. I think the words, do your best, be the best you can be, is not just, you know, be the best for yourself. It is to be the best for the world and be a person that um, cares about their community, the world's community and the small community, your family and everything. And... Uh, Like I said, that is just the nature of OPA, and uh, 